you have a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Uh, last Sunday, uh, we started this discussion of biblical social justice. And if you were here last week, you heard me say, uh, I discovered during my sermon preparation that I actually had two sermons instead of one. And so I said, I'm going to preach the second part of this sermon next Sunday, which is today. Uh, and I'm here today to tell you that I actually uh, made another mistake. I didn't preach half of the sermon last week. I preached a third. So you're going to get the middle section today, and we're going to come back at it again next Sunday. And I'm not going to rush through it. Uh, I'm going to take my time with it because it's an exploration for me personally in what God has to say about his definition of social justice. I will tell you that I have not spent a tremendous amount of time in my life with this topic, uh, but I think it's absolutely crucial, this juncture in the history of Green Tree Community Church, uh, that we begin to wrestle with and, uh, and tackle some of these questions. And uh, I would say a lot of people in our congregation are actually further down the road than I am in this conversation. So we're going to be in, be here today and also next Sunday. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to listen to the podcast so you can get the foundation for, uh, for these three Sundays. Christine Todd Whitman was the first uh, female governor of New Jersey. And I I, she might be the only one. I don't, I don't know that another woman has been elected in New Jersey uh, to governor. And she said this a few years ago. Anyone who thinks that they are too small to make a difference has never tried to fall asleep with a mosquito in the room. <laughs> it's okay to laugh in church. It really is. That was slightly humorous. Um, the problem or the challenge, I should say, with this topic is when you talk about social justice, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, so on the outset, it's going to be a challenge to kind of agree on terms and definitions. And then there's a lot of different opinions about how uh, social justice should be pursued. That's one of the reasons why we are looking at this from a biblical point of view, because God has already led the way, and it's on us to learn his word and to follow but the second part of the, the challenge comes in the fact that when you step back and you look at the, at the umbrella of issues that fall under the topic of social justice, biblical social justice, it looks daunting. It, it looks like it's, you know, it's kind of where you get, have a job in front of you and it's so big you almost just don't even start because you don't think you could ever quite get it done. You procrastinate out of a sense of feeling overwhelmed, not because you're a lazy person or someone who, who is a... Uh, not you know, willing to get involved and, and work hard, it feels like it's too much for any one person. So I'm going to go with Whitman's example this morning and say, even if you're a mosquito, you can make a big difference. I think individually what we're going to see in this text this morning, that in the, in the family, and the family could be one person or a couple or a, a husband, a wife with children, that, that biblical social justice, the application thereof, really comes down to the individual. It really comes down to a family or a person following God in this area. So even though the temptation is, you know, I can't make too much of an impact, I think we may be surprised to learn that God's pathway is actually within the grasp of his people. Deuteronomy chapter 15, I will tell you this is a bit of an odd passage uh, that, is, uh, that is fraught with the opportunity to misinterpret. So I would encourage all of us to prayerfully uh, listen and read carefully, and let's see what God has for us this morning. Deuteronomy 15, the giving of the law. God says to his people, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you 
He shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock and out of your threshing floor and out of your wine presses. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you. Then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired servant he has served you for six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds by your word. Father, as we wrestle with this topic, as we, uh, as disciples of Jesus, seek to come to grips with what it means uh, to follow him in this area of our lives, we pray that you would capture our hearts and our minds and our imagination with the power of your gospel the power of your word applied to human relationships and the difference it, that can make if we will trust you and we will follow you. Lord, we're not ancient Israel. We are 21st century American disciples. Uh, we have probably a different set of struggles than those folks did, and yet your truth knows no time limits. It knows no cultural limits, knows no social limits. The only limit we put on your word is our unwillingness to engage humbly and joyfully with what you're teaching. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would move in our hearts and our minds. There are words in this passage that uh, automatically cause concern to us. The notion that someone would actually enslave themselves to another one the rest of their life seems ludicrous to us. It seems maybe even offensive to us. So, Father, it's important that your spirit and your word teach us that you apply to our lives that which you would have us know and understand. Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of your teaching this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, let me take you back to uh, our definition of last Sunday. This is going to be a working definition for uh, the last Sunday, this Sunday, and next sermon in a sentence. Biblical social justice. It's important that we understand we're talking about God's paradigm here, not man's. Biblical social justice is the practical application of God's grace shared freely with everyone through in that four parts, evangelism, relief, development, and social reform. I've underlined development this morning because that's where we're going we're gonna to sit and rest with development this morning. Last week we talked about evangelism and relief. We'll do a quick review of that. Next week we'll talk about the element of social reform. So I want to give a, a, a one more sentence kind of clarification of where we'll be today. Followers of Jesus must intentionally invest our time, treasure, and talent for the purpose of creating pathways out of poverty. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. What does it mean to create pathways, to invest, to develop uh, a paradigm and a system so that those who are looking for the opportunity to work and to uh, 
earn a living and to uh, get to a place in life out from under the burden of poverty have that opportunity? That's our, our question this morning. Quickly, let's review what we looked at last week. And as I said, you can listen to the podcast to get this more in depth. Biblical social justice is God's pathway for us to reflect his grace. We're not coming up with something new and asking God to join us. The Lord isn't up in heaven going, boy, those people at Kirkwood, they've really come up with a new notion. Hadn't thought of that one before. We are seeking to find God's will in this area and to obediently follow him so that we can reflect his grace. The notion is that people would look at the choices you and I make with our time and our treasure and our talent, and they would scratch their heads and say, there's something different about those folks, and the difference being the impact that the Lord Jesus has had on our lives by saving us and by giving us his word and his Holy Spirit. So we're trying to reflect people back to the glory of God, not put ourselves in a position where people glorify us and say how wonderful we are. Secondly, biblical social justice always begins with the gospel. The gospel message is this, salvation by grace alone through faith in Jesus alone. If you're visiting Green Tree this morning, you'll hear lots of different teachings at Green Tree on lots of different topics. We're starting next Sunday, Sunday school class that goes uh, for six weeks. We would like as many people as possible to cram into the library for that class. So we talk about diversity and the issues facing our society today. You'll hear topics of families taught on. You'll hear uh, topics on money. You'll hear topics on our sexual identity. You'll all kinds of different topics, but it's all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. What you won't ever hear at Green Tree is that there's lots of pathways to God, and you just pick the one you want because it's a smorgasbord, and whatever you want to do is fine with God. What you're going to hear is the truth, and the truth is not defined by Tom Ricks, but the truth defined by Scripture, which is God has provided a way for salvation for you. He's provided a way of salvation for every person that's ever been born, and it comes through his son, the Lord Jesus. Biblical social justice has to include evangelism. It must have the spiritual component first and foremost. But it also includes several other things. And lastly, by way of review, biblical social justice always includes relief for those who cannot care for themselves. And some of the scriptural terms that are used to identify folks, widow, orphan, the needy, oppressed. They're, they're folks that simply uh, cannot do for themselves and they just need some help. They need some assistance. A few years ago, actually a lot of years ago, over 10 years ago, when our second Green Tree office, our first one was right up here at the corner uh, at the, the Cambridge building up here, and then we moved over to Hanlon's Meat Market building, and which is a great place to be in July when the air conditioning doesn't work and the meat market's in full swing. That's another story for another day. But when we were at Hanlon's Meat Market as our office uh, building, there was a guy that would come by every once in a while named Larry. Larry would stop in. I'd see him, you know, maybe two times in, in a week, and then I wouldn't see him for four months, and I'd see him again. And, and Larry was a little bit older gentleman, and he always just needed a little bit of help. Larry never came in and said, could you give me $1,000? Larry never came in and, and said, hey, could you, you know, could you, could you help me build a new house? Larry would come in and say, you know, I need a little something, and, and 20 bucks would go a long way and help me just enough so that every time he came in, I had enough to give to him. And every time he came in, God said to me, give that guy what he needs because he just I've sent him to you because he needs something. You're not getting anything out of it. 
You're not going to, you know, this is not, you're not going to pour into his life and make a difference. He just has a need, and I'm sending him to you because I know how much money you have in your wallet, and that's what he needs today. Well, I didn't see Larry for, I don't know, probably eight or nine years, and Thursday morning, Porter and I are standing outside on our back patio, and we're making hamburgers because we're doing another lunch for the workers, and who walks up at Larry? Larry, it's great to see you. How are you doing? We got to talk. Larry's in exactly the same place he was before. I said, Pastor, it's good to see you. Boy, those hamburgers smell really good. I said, well, there's at least two of them with your name on them. So I'm going to get those ready for him. He said, I, I, I need a fan belt. Now, I'm pretty sure Larry doesn't have a car, so I have no idea why he needs a fan belt. But he needs a fan belt, and fan belt was, was $20, and I had $20 in my wallet, so now it's in Larry's pocket. I don't know if he bought a fan belt or didn't buy a fan belt. Point being, in this review, there's simply going to be people in our lives that need uh, some generosity. From moment by moment. And scripture calls us to give and to give freely. In those moments where we see a person and we can just help in a little way alleviate or bring relief to them. That's part of biblical social justice. But friends, quite frankly, that's the easy part of it. This morning we're going to get into something that's much deeper and much more challenging and will cause all of us to pause and to think about our commitment to Christ. Does it really go that deep? Because it's not just about relief, it's also about development. What role does development play in biblical social justice? Well, that social justice on script, founded on Scripture always includes a disciple's responsibility for the larger community. Jesus didn't just save you and me so that we could have a great relationship with him individually. He saved us to a community, and our community happens to be called Green Tree Community Church. That's our spiritual family. If we're members, regular attenders here, but he's also called us to the area in which we live. So Kirkwood, Glendale, De Pere, Rock Hill, the kind of this surrounding area. We have folks, I think, that some live out in Baldwin and some Clayton. And that, so anywhere is our immediate area, we're called to have an impact. We're responsible for that larger community. So bring you back to, to what we said earlier. We must intentionally invest our time, treasure, and talent for the purpose of creating pathways out of poverty, you could say, in our community. It is our responsibility. That's the role that development plays. Is there a biblical paradigm for that? And that's where I want to take us to Deuteronomy chapter 15, to a passage of scripture that you may have read once in your life or never in your life, or maybe it's a passage with which you're familiar. Uh, I rediscovered it this week. I hadn't read this passage in a long time, but I think it creates a pathway. Now, I understand as I prayed, we're not ancient Israel. But the problems that Jesus, that God is addressing here, the problems of, of someone being destitute, are the same problems in our day. So there is application for us. Look at the context of this biblical paradigm. Verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you for six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. The context is that there is a community member, so God calls them brother, sister, it's your next door neighbor, it's the, it's the person down the street, it might be a relative, it, it might be someone that just you know well, but you have a community member for whom you are responsible who has become destitute. And the question that this passage is asking is, what are we going to do about that? It's not somebody else's issue, it's our issue, it's a person in our community. And notice that, that scripture is silent here on how they got that way. They're selling themselves into slavery because they are in debt and they can't get out of debt. Whatever amount of money they owe is too much and they can't find their way out, 
So they're going to become an indentured servant to someone else for some amount of time so that they can work their way eventually out of debt. But Scripture doesn't say how they got there. It doesn't say they were irresponsible, and it doesn't say they just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time out of sheer coincidence. And I believe Scripture leaves it in the dark because it's none of our business. The important thing here is not how did a person get there. The important thing here is my heart and being willing to help them get to a different place. God's not worried about that person when he's writing this particular verse. He's worried about how you and I will react to someone in need who needs our developmental assistance. God's protecting us from our own self-righteousness. He's protecting us from saying, well, I'll help so-and-so, but I won't help so-and-so. They deserve it. They don't. God simply says there's a brother or sister in your community in need. What are you going to do about it? And then he gives us the pathway. The first thing he says is that we should bring financial relief by buying out their debt. Again, verse 12, if, if your brother, Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, is sold to you. So the notion here is that who, to whomever they owe money, they're now indebted. And that's how it worked in ancient Israel. Now, that's different than the United States, although you could certainly say that people that take on a lot of debt are slaves to the credit card company or the bank where they owe a lot of money. You can certainly look at it that way. And here are folks that now have gotten to a place where they can't, they can't pay. They can't do anything about it, and they're overburdened, they're overwhelmed. What's your job, person of resource, person who has been blessed by God and has the wherewithal to help? The first thing you do is you get rid of the burden. You get them out from under that. You buy out their debt. You make a financial investment in order for them to get a little bit of breathing room, to get a little bit of space, to get that burden off of their shoulders. And I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to suggest that there is a protection here in the mind of God. To whom are our folks that get in that situation most vulnerable? Well, mostly it's predatory lenders. People who know they can get away with charging an exorbitant interest rate because these are the poorest of the poor. Nobody's going to advocate for them. Nobody's going to look out for them. And they probably will default on the loan, so I'm going to charge 20% interest and get my money out of the deal up front. And by taking that debt away and by going to that person, if you're a person of, of influence, you're a person of some means and you have a pretty good credit rating, you can go to that person and say, no way we're paying 19%. I'll give you three and you're going to take it. And you can be a person who stands up for those who are under extreme financial pressure. But what happens if you can't find a way out? One option is to turn to a life of crime. There's no question that our country shows the statistics bear it out. It's almost ridiculous that I would even mention it because everybody knows it. The vast majority of the people that are in prison are there. They're people that went into prison. When they went in, they were folks that lived at or below the poverty level. And they're trying to find a way to just get by day to day. I'm not excusing their crime. I'm not saying what they did is okay. But I'm simply saying that poverty begets crime. And by taking somebody off the street, so to speak, and providing for their financial relief takes that option off the table. They don't have to begin to think like a criminal. The other protection that's offered here is um, the, the notion, excuse me, the notion that at the end of the day, if you can't pay your bills and you don't have anything, eventually you could, you could starve to death. You could die from exposure. Uh, every winter, we probably hear of a homeless person who got really, really cold that night, and they, they didn't find shelter, and the next morning, they, they were found. They had died in the night. So God says to his people of means, people that he has blessed, 
with resources. Buy out their debt. The second thing he says for them, though, it's not just buy out their debt and send them on their way. That's not enough. You actually want to bring them in and provide a home. Look at verse 12. He will serve you for six years. In the seventh year, you will let him go free from you. I think God understands that a person in this situation probably needs some life coaching. They probably need someone else to invest in their lives to teach them, to help them understand how to follow a better pathway. And that doesn't happen overnight. That doesn't happen in a week. That doesn't happen in a month. That takes years of relational development. And where should the best relationships in our community be? In our own homes. I'm not saying they are, and I'm not saying that our homes are perfect, but our homes ought to be a place where there's a sense of belonging, where there's a sense of this is a safe place. All, our kids, all three of them, got in trouble as they were growing up. At one time or another, they got in trouble. Nathan, his, uh, I think it was his, his sophomore year, he would call home and tell Katie if the, if the, uh, if the um, cards came in the mail, you know, it said their progress report, to put it in the fireplace and burn it up, okay? So even, you know, first child, Nate, who hardly ever did anything wrong, he did stuff wrong too. Every one of our kids got disciplined from time to time, and every one of them probably thought from time to time, I really don't want to be part of this family. But I guarantee you, they always knew they belonged. They always knew that was their home and that they were safe there. This was their place. No matter what they did, this was, this was where they could go. I think about the children in this church that have been adopted and been brought into homes, some of the, some of the little ones among us recently, and I think about the blessing that is in their life. I think about having a place to belong, a place to call home, somebody to call mom, somebody to call dad. It makes all the difference in the world. And God says if you really want to help somebody, you're not only going to help them financially, but you're going to help them emotionally. You're, you're, you're going to help them with life coaching. You're going to connect with them and build a relationship so that you can actually pour good things into their lives. We're going to provide a home where I, someone can belong and someone can contribute all of our kids had to contribute in our house, too. You know, they had to make their bed. They had to learn to do their laundry. They had to learn to do the dishes. They had to learn to cut the grass. I remember the first time my dad let me use the, the mower in our yard cutting the grass. It was so much fun. It was the coolest thing I'd ever experienced. And I also remember it was the last time that it was really a lot of fun to cut the grass. You know, it, 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 it kind of ceased being fun after a little while. But, but I got to grow up in a home where I got to contribute. And it taught me something about responsibility. It taught me something about I'm not the center of the universe. We're caring for other people. God calls his people to pass that on to those who have become destitute, to provide financially, provide a home. But it doesn't stop there. It gets even more challenging. Look at verses 13 and 14. And when you will let him go free from you. So now it's been six years. And, and the debt, so to speak, has, has been paid. And they can now, they're now free to go back into society and to make their own way. When you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally or generously or abundantly out of your flock, your threshing floor, your wine presses. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. In other words, you're to invest in their future. And again, this isn't one for one, but maybe you've, you've helped somebody along and now the way to help them is to say, you know what? I want to help you pay for your college education. You know, we've gotten you this far, and you've made some money, and now, you know, we'll pay for every other class. Or maybe you've saved up a bunch of money, and you can, you know, you can go out and buy a car for $1,000, but I'm going to kick in a couple thousand, get you a little bit more reliable car. There's ways for us to send folks out whom we've invested in in a way that gives them a wonderful opportunity, not only to see the gospel in our lives, but to get out of the repetition of generational poverty. 
investing in their future after we have spent time developing a relationship with them, wanting the very best for them. The only way this happens is if it's motivated by proper theology. Look at verse 15. You shall remember, as you're in this process, and you're going to yourself, now why am I buying out their debt? Why am I providing home? Why, why, why am I investing in their future? I don't, what, why am I supposed to be doing this, God? You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. God says you got to think biblically. <laughs> you got to understand the context. You got to know that you were helpless and you were lost and you were a slave and I came to your rescue. And all I'm asking you to do, God says to us, is to just follow my lead. I think I told you last Sunday that I had asked a whole bunch of friends around St. Louis and around the country to give me their definition of biblical social justice. Ask them to think about it and and write me their definition. This is one of my very favorites. A woman at Green Tree wrote this. I'm not going to tell you her name. Um, but she wrote this, and I, and I just thought it, it just really was good theology. And uh, Scripture applied. Here's what she says. Biblical social justice requires those who have been given much to not isolate themselves from the reality of poverty, but to search it out, attach to it, and engage as it draws people to the only true equalizer, the cross of Christ. To those to whom much has been given, much is required. This means that our unearned privilege must be exercised to help and collectively impact those who have been marginalized and whose voices are not often heard in places of power. When a faith community actively participates with society and those with influence to ensure that our institutions and structures function with equal, with equity and equal opportunity, to have basic needs met and have access to the tools to rise from poverty, we are following Jesus. To be committed to call out systematic injustice and racism and engage in advocating for systematic remedies. This is biblical social justice. I read that and I realized that probably the wrong person was preaching this Sunday. What a beautiful statement of what it means to think biblically when it comes to caring for others in this notion of development. However, there is one slight glitch in the plan. You say, wait a minute, every plan that God has is perfect. Well, this one's actually even better than perfect, which, which actually makes it a little bit harder because here's what could happen. Look at verses 16 and 17. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, why? Because he's afraid? Because he, he, he thinks he'll fail again? No, because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you. And that notion of being well off is not just, you know, roof overhead and clothes on your back. It's emotional. It's spiritual. The, the whole of his being is in a better place for having lived these six years in your family. And he says, I won't go. He's saying, I want to be your slave the rest of my life. I want to be part of this family in this context, right? Then you shall take an all and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to you and to your female slave, you shall do the same. Our culture reads this, and, and, and I think the instant reaction is to be grossly offended by the, even by the term slave. And yet if you look at this carefully, it's talking about a family relationship. It's talking about someone who has paid off someone else's debt, provided them a home, has invested in order for that person's well-being. And this person, after six years, goes, you know what? I'm no fool. These people love me. Why would I ever want to leave? 
Now, when they hear the whole all through the earlobe thing, that might change their, their you know, the, oh, well, okay, I think I will go. But uh, assuming they don't mind a little bit of blood, the point being that there's a bond that's been forged here, not out of fear, not out of oppression. And this is, the, the, the Bible is not uh, saying here, you know, slavery is the right way to go, that, that we should oppress other people and we should enslave other people. What the Bible is saying here is here's a pathway to new life. Here's a pathway to having dignity, to be able to, to care for yourself and, and to be part of caring for others. And it's, it's the flaw of love. In other words, there, there isn't really a flaw. But God even provides for the fact that, you know what, these relationships may get so deep and so binding that everybody just wants them to be like a family for the rest of their lives. And if that's the case, then so be it. This is a paradigm for development. But really, what is it, friends? If you look at it carefully, and if, and if you know the Word of God a little bit, hopefully what you're thinking right now is this is not just the notion of development, but rather it's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. Is it not? Jesus bought out your debt on the cross of Christ. You were under a mountain of debt, of sin, and you could never get out from under it. I owed so much to God by the evil in my own heart that I was going to be condemned as a debtor for all of eternity. And yet what happened when we were still weak, and that word weak in, in Romans 5 means helpless, when we were still helpless, just at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for the people that weren't even looking for help, but living in despair. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, if you're a believer, the only reason that's true is because Jesus paid your debt. And a debt that you and I could never repay. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? It's not just that he paid the debt and said, well, hope you make it home. I'll see you when you get here. He provides a home for us, does he not? Look at what Peter says to his readers. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Again, you did nothing to earn your way into the family of God. It was a gift that's given. And now you're part of royalty. Now you belong to the king. Now you're an adopted son, an adopted daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He provides a home, but it doesn't stop there. He invests in our future, does he not? Our immediate future by providing the Holy Spirit. He says to his disciples on the night he was betrayed, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. In other words, I'm going to create a pathway for you to know how to follow so you can get home. I'm going to make sure your immediate future is cared for. But beyond that, I want you also to know that the ultimate question has been answered as well. I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. What God is pointing the children of Israel to do in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and what he's pointing you and me to do in this day and age is simply to be a reflection of his grace in action. The gospel is the model for us to follow. So how do we apply it? Well, let me suggest to you the first application is wanting to experience true joy. And I think the way that happens in this world is not by accumulating more, not by trying to create a life of ease and buffer yourself from the, the challenges of this world and the brokenness of this world, but rather it's by diving into the challenges and diving into the brokenness and saying we're going to be individuals and collectively as a church family, we're going to be people who create, help create developmental pathway in our community for our neighbors to break free of poverty. Look at what 
God says in verse 18, the last verse in this passage this morning. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at half a cost of a hired servant, he has served you for six years. God says to him, financially, it'll work out for you. Because this person is going to come and contribute to your household. And if you actually went out and tried to hire somebody to do this, it would be a lot more money. But the point being, it won't be hard for you. Why? Because you've seen them grow. You've seen them become a new person. So the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. When you reflect the grace of God, God says, let me endorse that in your life. Let me make sure that people around you see, not that I'm going to give you more money or more fame or more fortune, but let them see my hand of blessing on your life so they know that's the right pathway to follow. You're never in trouble when you're following God. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying it's going to be simple. I'm not saying anything going to cost you anything. It could cost you everything. There are brothers and sisters around the world that to follow God through Jesus cost them their lives, but you're never in trouble because God's already prepared and taken care of our future. He calls us to true joy. What do you see when you see our new building? When you think about 100 Kirkwood Place, and maybe you drive by there occasionally, what do you, what do you see? And you say, Tom, that's a ridiculous question. I see a church. What does that mean? You see a place where our kids can have a great Sunday school class, which is, it will be, absolutely. You see a place where we can do weddings and funerals, which absolutely um, it will be. Uh, you see a place where we have the opportunity to use seven days a week and have Bible studies and teachings? Absolutely, it will be. But is that all we see? Is that, is that where our commitment stops? Or are there other things we could maybe see? And I'm not sure what they are. I don't, I don't know yet. But just kind of thinking out loud, maybe, maybe we should see a medical clinic. Maybe we should see a place where people can come and get health care at a reasonable price. And hold their head up in dignity. Maybe we should see a jobs training center where young people won't have to look at their lives. Say the greatest moment of my life is my senior prom because after that it's all downhill from there. You see, friends, people in our community, that's their lives today. I'm not making up stories. I'm not telling you about a, a society and a culture that doesn't exist. There are people that live less than a mile or two from our house that are living in a different world. And I think a lot of how we see this new building, this new property, says a lot about our relationship with the Lord Jesus and whether or not we're going to follow him. What do you see when you see this building? Maybe an after-school tutoring program, maybe a bargain store. Ultimately, I think what I hope we see is a Christ-centered, neighbor-loving neighbor city set on a hill. So my application for us this morning um, is pick a starting point. And as I said, for some of you, you're a lot further down the road than me. Uh, some of you have just begun to think about this, and some of you are somewhere in between. But we need to begin to get our minds around this, friends, because this is going to be part of Green Tree in the years to come. Maybe your starting point is going to that Sunday school class for the next six, six weeks talk about diversity and, and the challenges that, that face us here in this part of St. Louis. Maybe your starting point is uh, maybe being part of working with at-risk kids at Kirkwood High School. Maybe your starting point is you look at that property and you go, hey, there's some property around it I could buy up and we could actually build a clinic. I could actually buy all that property or get a couple buddies and we could put some money together and we could get a partnership and we could create a jobs training some, uh, uh, center. Your starting point might be a, that you're a person that God's given the opportunity to make a, a 
a big impact at that level. Your impact might be to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to join the Hope Unlimited tutoring program. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest in one kid every week for the next five or six years until they graduate from high school. Here are the names of the people that are on the Hope Unlimited team that go to Green Tree. So if you know one of those and you want to begin somewhere with just one person, that would be a great place to start. Because I want to come back to, to Whitman's statement. Anyone who thinks they're too small to make a difference has never tried to fall asleep with a mosquito on the wing. Right? There's a place for every one of us. And some of us are being called to do large things and big things. Maybe God hasn't revealed it to us yet, but I believe that, that by God's grace, Green Tree could actually pave the way to see such change in our community from the grace and the love of God that people actually come to Christ for salvation before we, we've ever said a word to them about the gospel because of what they've seen. Will we follow God in this challenging but very real pathway of development when it comes to biblical social justice? Pastor Copeland, New Zion Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois, put it this way. The world rarely searches out the claims of Christ, but it always scrutinizes those who claim to be Christians. Indifference to the poor and the disadvantaged means there has not been a true grasp of our salvation by sheer grace. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I uh, thank you for the challenge of your word. Father, I'm convicted by this passage. I preach the gospel week in and week out, but do I live it? Am I making it a, a developmental difference anywhere for the cause of Christ? Father, as we come to your table this morning, we come to uh, the place where you gave everything that those who had nothing could be saved. So, Father, teach us from your word. Apply this lesson to our lives for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
I have not loved like that. I'm stingy with my time, uh, with my talent, with my treasure. I have not made that kind of investment in people. I enjoy my comfort, um, and getting my hands dirty like that is inconvenient. I need a savior.